All right, as we uh, start our study, the next three lessons will be talking about premillennialism. Let's begin first thing this morning by looking at Revelation chapter 20. Just a reading this morning. But we'll see as we introduce the subject and understand what it is as it is defined by those who have opposed it uh, for the last hundred plus years, really for several centuries. Uh, this becomes our proof text for much of what they believe and teach. Greg, if you would, read verses 1 through 10 here in Revelation chapter 20. And I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up, and set a seal on him, so that he could, should deceive the nations no more, till the thousand years were finished. But after these things he must be released for a little while. And I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the wit- their witness to Jesus, for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast, or his image, and had not received his mark on their foreheads, or on their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power. But they shall be priests of God and of Christ, and shall reign with him a thousand years. And when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison, and will go out to deceive the nations, which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them to the battle, to battle, whose number is as the sand of the sea. They went up upon the breadth of the earth, and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city, and fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire, <clears throat> brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Start out that reading. We're going to come back to that uh, Wednesday evening. Uh, Wednesday evening will be, uh, we'll spend quite a bit of time in Revelation 20. Because what we're going to see this morning as we look at the definition in just a moment, uh, if you've got Revelation 20 in front of you, this becomes a basis for this teaching of premillennialism. As we uh, take a look at, at get an introduction to it, we want to look uh, this morning at what the theory is, and also want to look at what the implications are. If indeed the theory is true, what are the implications? And embedded in this, can a Christian hold these views and be faithful? In the South, is not as much of a discussion. Uh, if you go back to 30s and 40s and 50s, 1930s, 40s, and 50s, uh, we'll note this morning, other parts of the country, it's still a discussion among God's people. Uh, the text, Revelation 20, we'll look at that Wednesday evening. We'll also look at some passages from Psalms, Psalms 110, Psalms 2. A few of the key uh, passages in Psalms that are used as some of the proof texts. Uh, next Sunday morning, we want to look at the, at the response to the Scriptures. Uh, we won't have time to even scratch the surface of all of the Scriptures that really respond uh, to this theory. But we, we do want to take a look at it. As always, remind ourselves to begin our study of a couple of key premises of Bible study. One, 1 Peter 4.11. Peter says, If any man speaks, speak as the Lord of the oracle of God. So that's what we want to do. Uh, we want to speak as the oracle of God. And again, from uh, Peter, this time Second Peter, uh, knowing this verse, no prophecy is a private interpretation. 
No prophet ever came to will of man, but man that spoke to faith in God being moved to the Holy Spirit. So we have God's inspired word in front of us. That becomes a basis for our study this morning. If you engage in a study with someone who holds this doctrine, if they refuse to accept the, the Bible as a basis for study, then the study is really over, right? Because there's no basis upon which to make decisions of right or wrong. In that case, in this case, that's really not the case. They will attempt to take the Scriptures and prove this theory of premillennialism. Well, as we talk about it, let's talk a little bit about, about, what, it, about what it is. You look at the word very briefly. Pre means before. A millennial means 1,000. Ism simply means a doctrine. It's a dogma. Uh, some people call it a theory. So premillennialism. We'll see to find in a moment. It implies that there's going to be something that's going to last a thousand years, and they believe that we're before that thousand years. So premillennial period, we're now in in their thinking the premillennial period. Here's my summation. A lot of ways to summarize this. Uh, this is why I chose to summarize this morning. This really view: Christ came to Earth for the purpose of establishing His kingdom. Was, however, surprisingly rejected by the Jews. Hence, he postponed the kingdom and set up the church instead. When he returns, he will raise only the righteous dead, commonly referred to as the rapture. Rapture ushers in the tribulation period, during which Solomon's temple is rebuilt and Old Testament sacrifices are restored. The second half of the tribulation period is consumed by a conflict that is consummated by the Battle of Armageddon. Then restore national Israel, sit upon David's throne, David's little throne in Jerusalem, and then reign for a thousand years. After the thousand-year reign comes the resurrection of the wicked and the judgment. Now, as with any uh, doctrine that men derive, there are many, many variations of this. Uh, so if you even studied this morning and saw other definitions, it would differ. Uh, this is the one, if you've heard of the Schofield Bible we mentioned briefly, this is sort of the dispensational view taken in the Schofield Bible. So there are many variations of this. I'll point out a few of those we go through this morning. Now, we just read Revelation chapter 20, and out of Revelation 20 is born this premillennial theory. What I did was try to, uh, this view I wanted to present. Uh, this is Hal Lindsey. Some of you remember the book, The Late Great Planet Earth, 1972. Now, 1972, uh, for some of you, the date's not very meaningful uh, because of age. Some of us remember when this book came out. I remember when it first came out, I got a copy. And I just started reading it from cover to cover because it was interesting. Uh, Hal Lindsey, this book became very popular in the 70s. If you listen to the, to the, the radio and television evangelists, this is what they were talking about in the 1970s. Here's what Hal Lindsey says is going to happen, and this he believes. Now, that's why the date's important. Uh, history's changed, right? Uh, history has since, by the way, proven that his theory was, was obviously wrong. But here's what he felt very strongly about. He said that Israel would soon be invaded by a confederation of Arab African forces headed by Egypt. This happened. Russia and her allies would use such as an occasion to invade and conquer for a short time in the Middle East. Subsequently, the Russians learned the progressive mobilization of Oriental forces under Red China, Western European forces under the Antichrist, a fuhrer like dictator. He will prepare to fight, but will be completely destroyed, probably in a nuclear attack by Western Europe. Which is supposed to be revived is, is to be is supposed to be the revived Roman Empire. According to this section, stage for the final climactic battle of Armageddon, 
The combining force of Western civilization under the leadership of the Roman dictator and the vast or the Orient probably united under the red Chinese war machines. This battle between the Oriental forces with 200 million soldiers and the armies of the Antichrist will occur within the vortex centered at the Valley of Megiddo. So many will be killed that blood will stand to the horses' bridles for a total distance of 200 miles northward and southward of Jerusalem. In fact, Lindsay playing this war will spread over all the earth, destroying cities like London, Paris, New York. Finally, as battle Armageddon received its awful climax and fears of all the life will be destroyed on earth, in this very moment, Christ returns and saves man from its self-extinction. So that's the a good summary of the book, the late, late, the late Great Planet Earth by Hal Lindsey. Now, if you go back to 1974, you're in the midst of the Cold War, right? Uh, with Russia, uh, very dominant. And I remember at the time, I, I listened to a radio show, and I drove home from work at nighttime. He was on every night. And one night he got my attention because the particular phrase here, he talks about the blood, he actually believes that. He said, he said the bloodshed will literally come up the bridles of horses. It would be that much bloodshed. So I share this with you to let you know it's not... It's a theory that is, is, is widely reset, uh, believed, uh, as we'll see in just a moment. But this is where it leads to. Uh, here's a pictorial depiction I put together. Many of these have been done. Uh, this, again, captures the dispensationalist view that Schofield took and does take in his Schofield Records Bible, although he's been dead for many years. Uh, historically, you've got the Old Testament age, the Jewish age, uh, Jesus comes, and according to the theory we just noted, uh, he's rejected by the Jews. Many point to Matthew chapter 11 as the specific chapter, the specific time. That's the chapter where Jesus abrades the cities, right? The Bethsaida and the other cities. Because he said that's where, that's where he had done the majority of his work, and he was rejected by the Jews. So many believe that Matthew 11 is the point in time when God changed his mind, God decided that the kingdom would not be established because the Jews had rejected Christ, and instead he would establish the church. And so the church is presented as an afterthought, possibly born at the period in Jesus' life of recorded in Matthew chapter 11. Because the Jews rejected Christ at his coming, uh, the church age begins about that period of time. So we live now, according to theory, in the church age, not in the age of the kingdom, but in the church age as they would define it. Now the church age is going to continue until, until Christ returns. Uh, when Christ returns, there are various views what will happen. The most predominant is a rapture. That is, that when Christ does return, he's going to pull up to him those who are saved. The Christians who are saved are going to be taken up with Christ. You see a bumper sticker. In case of rapture, this car will have no driver, right? That's what lands due to it. They believe it's going to be a very silent, a very quiet return. And when the rapture happens, most believe that those who are saved will just quietly be gathered up to meet Christ in the air. All right? That's a rapture theory. If you've studied with very many people, you've encountered the rapture because... Many, I won't say most, many, many uh, denominational folks accept this view. If you have friends who are Southern Baptists or talk to Southern Baptists, many, if not most, are going to accept this view of the rapture. So it's a very dominant uh, belief. Now, there are a couple of variations. Some believe that there's going to be a first return and a second return. 
first return takes place at this point in time, although they only talk about one return, but there's a first, second, and there's a dominant return where he comes again at the beginning of the thousand-year reign. So the rapture takes place, so the saved are taken out to meet Christ. In the dispensational view, there's a period of a seven-year tribulation. Some will talk about a period of 70 years. It's ten times seven being 70 years, so you got a period of tribulation. But during this period of seven years, the belief is that Solomon's temple is going to physically be rebuilt in the nation of Israel. That the Old Testament sacrifices and ordinance are going to be restored as they were during the Old Testament age. Now think about that. If this happens in the year 2009, January 1st, it means that quick, soon, immediately after that, they're going to start rebuilding the temple. Once again, the people, the Jews in Israel, are going to be offering animal sacrifices. That's the that's the theory that we're looking at uh, this morning. Then most believe we'll hold the seven-year tribulation period. That there will be that this three and a half-year period will be followed by the second half, the seven-year period, in which there's going to be a great conflict, much like the one described in Hal Lindsey's book the late great planet Earth. Then, in the dispensational view, you've got Armageddon. Some hold the view that Armageddon actually takes place over here, close to what Revelation might actually teach. The majority will hold that Armageddon takes place here. And Armageddon, as described by Hal Lindsey, is there's going to be a great, a great physical battle, a war in the world. And if you go back to 1972, you saw what the nation that Hal Lindsey was talking about. Uh, Russia, Red China. Uh, there got to be quite a fervor back in the 70s, if you followed that, that they thought this was very imminent. They thought the time was at hand because of all the things happening in the world. I watched with interest as time rolled along in my lifetime. 2001 comes in the Middle East conflict. And again, I started to hear on, uh, by the televangelists the time is down here because of what's happening in the Middle East. So they continue to reevaluate and readjust the, the, the history and the nations actually involved to fit what they believe is going to happen. But there will be this battle of Armageddon. Again, a physical, a physical battle is going to take place. Now, of, interesting, of interest, we're going to see in a moment in a date, is the year 1947. Now, as it relates to Israel, somebody was in the store. What happened in 1947 in, in Israel? You then had a sovereign state of Israel, first time, all right, for four thousand years. Uh, that's important because those of you who are even older than me, if you listen to or read the uh, the debates, the Neil the Neil Wallace debate, Foley Wallace debate, read that debate, heard it back when it was first delivered, it was pre nineteen forty seven, going back into the thirties and forties. At that point in time, even in Floyd Wallace's book, he makes the point that Israel is not even a sovereign state or a nation. But even he did not, he really in his book, look, I didn't think that would ever happen, but it did. So that's a period of time, another key date, uh, because that led in the minds of many people credibility. 1947, Israel is now restored as a nation, as a sovereign state. That was key and and continuing this doctrine, even from the 20s and 30s, even when the church will talk about it, because they felt like that now that the Israel state, that was the first step taking place. And that led many to believe 
that this was very well, it was very imminent because that would be the first state. And now Israel is a sovereign nation. They saw God's hand in that, so God is now restoring Israel and finally fulfilling the, the promise that He made to Abraham. Right. So that's part of that theory. In the Armageddon, Christ returns and will have a literal 1,000 year reign in Israel. Now the belief is that He will come back to earth, be on earth as a man. He's going to reign on the literal throne of David in Israel for that 1,000 year period. They believe it's going to be a literal 1,000 year period. They look at Revelation chapter 20 we read a moment ago. Uh, they believe everything is figurative in Revelation 20 except the thousand year reign, and they believe that to be a literal thousand years. At the end of that time, judgment will take place. The wicked are then going to be resurrected, because bear in mind the saved have already been resurrected back at this point in time. So you're going to have a resurrection of the just. A thousand years later, you're going to have a resurrection of the unjust, if you will. At that period of time, they determined it. Well, that's sort of a timeline, and again, there are many, there are a number of variations to this. I want to uh, look at it very briefly. It's commonly accepted. If you ask who believes this, the first two groups would be the Seventh Day Adventists and the Jehovah Witnesses. If you talk with them, that they have set the dates. Uh, the most popular date for the Witnesses was what year? 1914. But 1914 was the date that uh, they uh, spoke of, and this is the date. They were sure that 1914 would be the date. I had a lady, a sister of church uh, up in Illinois. She made a point one day to say, with me, uh, she was born in the 1800s. And she said, Jerry, I know it didn't happen in 1914 so I was alive. And I never will forget her telling me that. So many dates have been set. But Seventh-day Adventists, like I mentioned a moment ago, most Southern Baptists will hold a view or some view of this. That's why they believe the rapture uh, will take place. Uh, many, if not most, of the holiness churches. So you've got a wide acceptance of people. Uh, the key proponents, if you go back into the, the 1800 time frame, uh, Mr. Schofield, you may have an old Schofield reference Bible. It's not one you want to buy and give to somebody to use as their study Bible, unless they're very learned. If you're a good Bible student and want to understand what this is all about, Certainly get a Schofield Bible. And you can see the theory as he threw his preferences because he links the passage together in the reference Bible and he teaches this, this doctrine of, of uh, premillennialism. And how Lindsay, I already mentioned. Uh, closer to home with us is the Apostles in the Lord's Church. Many, I find, are not even aware of this. That premillennialism was and still is an issue. I wasn't keenly aware of this until the two years I worked Otis Elevator up in Bloomington, Indiana. Sort of in, sort of in going to the southern part of Indiana. Johnny Edwards was preaching there at the time, and I talked with Johnny about it. I began those in his sermons. He would very often make a point about some point about this doctrine, be it the throne of David, uh, be it a point how that the Abrahamic promise has been fulfilled, that the restoration promise has been fulfilled, and more comments than one might expect, just in general study. And I asked Johnny about it. And uh, it, it, the reason he did that was in the end of Southern Park, Indiana especially, it became a very dominant uh, theory and battle in the 1920s, 30s, even in the 1940s. I've got out of my dad's library an old book, the Neil Wallace debate, Foley Wallace debate, 
1943 in Winchester, Kentucky. And uh, now as I've gotten older, I understood why he had that particular book in the library. Because as he began his studies seriously in 1950, uh, in 1950 it was very much still a, a topic of discussion among the Lord's people. Uh, so it became an issue that caused division in the church. Very little influence in the South. Very little influence in the Southwest. Uh, there were men down here who stood for the truth in this part of the country. So even though Kentucky is not far away, it didn't venture in the South to take a stronghold as it did, especially in Kentucky, Indiana, and Missouri. Uh, some of you may have the Bowles debate, B-O-L-E-S, B-O-H-L debate. Uh, the prominent spokesman for those who left the church was R.H. Bowl. Any of you received back in the, those years a gospel advocate? This is, now, this predates the institutional issues that came along. Uh, the gospel advocate, of course, went the way of, of the institutional brethren. But I've got some old, some old copies. Uh, Sister Lucy Glass had a bump through those. She gave them to me. I've got some of the old bound volumes. So you go back in the 30s, 40s, very good writing. Uh, very sound men were writing in the gospel advocate during that period of time. They talked the truth. Well, R.H. Bull was a writer for the Gospel Advocate. Uh, he became very key in this apostasy because he was a man of great influence within the church in the Kentucky area. So because of his influence and others, uh, there was the apostasy in the Lord's church. So people left the church over premillennialism during that period of time. In the state, the exhorter, I'm assuming he's still published, been around for many, many years. It's a paper published bi-weekly. It's distributed primarily among the premillennial churches of Christ, and that's how it's stated. They consider themselves to be premillennial churches of Christ. So it's not something that you associate only with the Adventists, but also with the Lord's Church, because it split the church back that period of time. <coughs> Defenders of Truth, Foley Wallace. Uh, when I was a young man, about 19, 20 years old, and began to study, uh, someone I respect as one of the greatest scholars I've ever known in my age, Hiram Hutto. He said, Jerry, you need to buy two books. If you want to learn and study, get two books. One is The Gospel Plan of Salvation by T.W. Prince, and the other is God's Prophetic Word. He said, if you only have two books in your library, get those two books. Now, as, after I got them studied cover to cover, both books, I understood what he meant with those two books. Two excellent books. And I would agree, uh, from a library standpoint, they need to get a library. The God's prophetic word written by Foley Wallace came out of all of the debates and discussions out of this period of time in the 30s and 40s and really combating uh, the issues in the church during that period of time. And uh, also, R.L. Whiteside was often moderator for Wallace in these debates, the kingdom of prophecy. So just a brief introduction. We're going to take a lot more time, except I think it is key for us to understand in the church that this not only took place but there are still seeds up. There are still issues. There are still issues with brethren in Kentucky. There are still families divided in Kentucky, especially in the Louisville area, Bowling Green area. And you may have family up there. Uh, so it's still it's not a dead issue in the church. It's important for us to know this. If you have young people that go to college and move off, they could well go to a place, a city somewhere, and begin attending a church. And lo and behold, there are those there who will hold a premillennial feelings and beliefs. From that standpoint, it's still relevant to us today. It's not just a quote denominational doctrine that it's nice to understand about, but don't really have to be concerned about it. If you have children or grandchildren 
They need to understand some very basic teachings of what this is all about. Well, that's sort of the theory. What I want to do now is, is point out uh, what are the necessary implications of this. One is that the Abrahamic promise is not fulfilled. Going all the way back to Genesis 12, that's how deep the roots are. Uh, which of the three uh, promises would he be referring to here? Not fulfilled. Primarily the land. To some extent, the nation. But the land, they don't feel that that, that that land promise is yet fulfilled by God. There's something yet to happen. The restoration promise. What's the restoration promise? Being restored. 721, 722. Israel going into Syrian captivity. 606 to 586. Judah going into Babylonian captivity. Uh, the promise made to Jeremiah that after a period of 70 years, what would happen? <coughs> Israel would be restored after a period of 70 years. And as you as Chronicles ends and you begin the book of Ezra, Nehemiah, you know that in the person of Cyrus that happened. But it says that the restoration promises is not yet fulfilled. It says that the rejection of Christ by Jews was unpredictable. What does that say about God, Charles? Here God sent Christ to establish the kingdom. It was unpredictable. What does that say about God? Says he just he didn't know, right? It says he couldn't predict what was going to happen. Uh, it caught God by surprise that the Jews rejected Christ. After all, if you look at Galatians 3, uh, the Old Testament law was what to the Jews? What's that word used? It was a schoolmaster. For what purpose? To lead them to Christ. It was a tutor schoolmaster. So that was God's plan in their viewpoint. Okay, he gave them the law to lead them to Christ. When Jesus came, and lo and behold, that didn't work. It didn't lead them to Christ. They rejected Christ. And the point is, it was unpredictable. It also says that the church was substituted for the kingdom. In your reading and study, you'll sometimes read of the postponement theory. The postponement theory says the kingdom was postponed. And the church was substituted in its place. The church, the church then becomes an afterthought, and it's not part of God's eternal plan. Now we're going to come back next Sunday morning and look at a lot of passages that address this, but really... This becomes a basis for your study this next week as you have reading time. Even now, what happens with your mind? Your mind is, is thinking about passages, right? Well, wait a minute. If all of these implications are part of it, well, what does Paul say in Ephesians chapter 3? Verses 8, 9, 10. And it was part of God's eternal purpose of God made known in the church. Alright? So... This next week, think about what these implications are and be thinking about well, what, what are some Bible passages that seem to be contra- contradictory to this theory or vice versa. So it says the church is not a part of God's eternal plan but was a substitute after the Jews rejected Christ. Now is it a fact that the Jews as a nation rejected Christ? Is that a fact? Yes, they did. There's no question about that. Uh, that's stated in many places. Paul's statement very clear. Seeing you thrust the gospel from you, lo, I turn and do what? Gentiles. Go to the Gentiles. Right? Uh, the implication is that John the Baptist and the apostles were not in the kingdom in the first century. What's significant about that statement? What did uh, John the Baptist and the apostles teach? What did Jesus teach? The kingdom was at hand. It was very imminent. What did uh, John the apostle say in Revelation chapter 1? I, John, your brother... In what? In the kingdom. So the implication is that as the apostles wrote, John, the apostles, the, the 
that I should have put John Baptist here as a misleading statement. could be interpreted incorrectly there. But John was not in the kingdom. Uh, but my point over John taught about the kingdom being at hand. But it says the apostles were not in the kingdom in the first century. Don't be misled with my poor uh, sentence here. Because John, of course, speaks of the kingdom. You think of Colossians chapter 1, verse 13. And what does Paul say there? He has delivered us into the kingdom of right. his son, the son of his love. And translated, and those are the blue tense. It's a past tense, right? So what I want you to do is use this as a springboard this coming week as you're at work, driving down the road, not waiting for the rapture, but as you're driving down the road, uh, Christ could return, but it won't be the rapture. But as you think this week about what are some of the verses? What does the Bible actually say? Because I know that sitting here this morning, you're armed a lot of Bible knowledge, some of which you may never associate it uh, with this particular theory. Well, how do I teach my neighbor? If there's Southern Baptists, there are many around, right? How do I teach them? If Jehovah's Witness comes to my door, or Seventh-day Adventists wants to talk to me about the Bible, what verses do I use? Uh, so that's one thing we want to have as a takeaway of our study. The implication is that the kingdom of Daniel 2.44 is not yet established. Now, you may have picked up on the fact Part of how Lindsay's theory was that Rome was going to be revived. Why would that be a part of that theory? That Rome was going to be revived. Right, it goes back to... They, can't, they cannot just uh, take Daniel 2 and just take a pair of scissors and cut it out of the Bible. Somehow they got to address Daniel chapter 2. Uh, they accept the fact that Daniel 2, that the fourth kingdom is the, the, the Roman Empire. So they accept the fact that the Roman Empire was going to be that kingdom. So they accept the fact. What they don't believe, though, is that it's yet fulfilled. So somehow they got to deal with Daniel chapter 2, verse 44. What does that passage say? That in the days of what? These kings. These kings shall the kingdom of heaven be established. Alright? So the kingdom is going to be established in the days of the Roman Empire. Well, the Roman Empire has risen and fallen many, many years ago. Uh, going on uh, 2,000 years ago since the Roman Empire fell. So a lot of time has come and gone. Uh, so in this theory, you see, they believe that Rome, once again, has to rise up to prominence. Because if that doesn't happen, there's no way they can defend Daniel 2.44. And they actually addressed that in some of their debates back in the 30s and 40s. Rome would be restored to prominence. For us, the difference is, imagine what it does to your understanding of New Testament Scriptures and to the validity of the Old Testament prophecies, if indeed that is not true. Start looking at Luke chapter 1 and Luke chapter 3. See, a number of verses start coming to your mind. Well, wait a minute. Daniel 2.44, we know it. We know it happened uh, because of references made even in the Gospels. Some of these we'll come back and take a look at. Uh, in case, there's going to be a great world conflict with Israel and its allies are going to be victorious. Some of you have mentioned the sermons years and years ago now. Uh, the influence of this doctrine on the U.S. political decisions. Now, how would it influence the U.S. national policy? <clears throat> what possible influence could it, <clears throat> could it have on what, our, on, on what the leaders of our country on what their decisions are? For Israel, on the right side. Exactly right. Uh, interesting. I did research years ago, and it was interesting. <clears throat> How many presidents and how many key leaders hold a premillennial theory and hold it very strongly? Uh, we think of our national leaders often, many times, being godless people. Many are, but many are not. 
Many have pretty deeply seated beliefs. And many have very strong views that Israel one day is going to be restored to power. The nation of Israel is going to be raised up by God. And there is going to be a battle with Israel and its allies against the other forces of the world. And only Israel and its allies are going to be victorious. Now you think about the power of that. If you hold that to be very, a very dear belief of yours, you feel very strongly whose side do you want to be on. Don't want to be opposed to Israel. So from a national standpoint, there's been quite an influence, I believe, on our foreign policy and probably still is today. Can't turn on the news without hearing about Israel. And it's a small country less than half the size of the state of Alabama. And yet uh, it's in the news all the time. Why is it? Right? So I think there's a lot of it goes back to this right here. I really do. And uh, interesting study. So there's going to be an actual battle. There's going to be a war. Uh, you saw what Hal Lindsey thought. Nation of Earth be uh, destroyed. By the time he came along and wrote 1972, he was looking at, at nuclear power as being the force that was going to do that. Some go so far to say the world itself is going to be destroyed by mankind during the battle. But the key point is the Jews will be converted and restored as a nation. Uh, now, here, not a nation as a nation, a sovereign state, but as a nation of God's people, much as they were back in the Old Testament days. Where God made it very clear that. That I will be to you as a God, you will be to me as my people. That type of relationship. That somehow, almost in an instant, uh, during this period of time, the Jews are going to accept Christ. They rejected Him before, but now the Jews and nation are now going to turn and now going to accept Christ. They're going to embrace Him. Many of the Jews, the Jews will be those then who will be teaching the Gentile people during that thousand year period of time. Or at least during the three and a half period of that tribulation period, depending on which theory you hold. Definitely believe they're going to be restored as a nation of people, and that Israel is going to be restored to prominence as a nation. And that's very key. I believe Solomon's temple is going to be rebuilt, the physical temple is going to be rebuilt, and that the ordinance is going to be restored. Now think about this. As you think this week about past, what is this? How does this collide with Hebrews chapter 9 and Hebrews chapter 10? Eric, what's Hebrews 10 for? So you got that memorized. What does it say about the blood of bulls and goats? Can't take, Can't take away sin, right? Has it said that every time you looked at it? It has it changed, right? Okay. So you look at Hebrews 9 and 10 and you start thinking about, wait a minute, Jewish origins be restored. All right? Jesus says, a body you prepared for me. Why did God prepare a body for Christ? What happened to the Old Testament sacrifices? Been taken out of the way, right? So as you think about this, think about what Hebrews nine, nine chapter nine and ten say. Uh, we'll talk about this Wednesday evening. Our focus will be on Revelation twenty, but it teaches a literal one thousand year reign that Jesus will reign over earthly kingdom of Israel for a literal one thousand years. Now I should have put on. I had a one on the throne of David. What issues do you have? What issue would the Hebrew writer again have? With Jesus reigning on earth as king over Israel. Right? Certainly after life, so there are none, none would prosper in the throne, right? So there's a clear passage we'll get next Sunday that says he could not prosper. You think about Melchizedek. Melchizedek was king of Salem and what? Priest most high. Alright? He was king and priest. Christ came after the order of Melchizedek, making 
Christ is both king and priest. If you look at a ruler over Israel, the Hebrew writer again makes one point very clear. What does it say about Christ? It says he could not. You know, he can't be both king and priest on earth. So the Hebrew writer makes a strong argument that it's a spiritual kingdom that Christ reigns over because he could not reign over a literal physical king of Israel as both king and priest because the kings come out of the tribe of Judah. Priest out of the tribe of Levi. Two different conflict. Then you have this uh, implication that the righteous, that the resurrection of the righteous is going to precede that of the unjust and the unrighteous. Take a verse, what does John 5 29 say? That borrow without this, the hour cometh. In which what? In the grave. All the red haired boys shall come forth. Alright? Both the just and the unjust. So your mind, well, wait a minute, this, this doesn't seem right either because of passage like John 5, uh, beginning verse 29. But you've got two resurrections. And it denies that Christ is now reigning. Uh, this is the very heart of what it denies. It denies the, the teachings of the Old Testament. If you go back to Isaiah 2, Micah 2, book of Hosea, all the, the prophecies about Christ, how they culminated in Acts 2, as the Apostle Peter affirms, that these, these, this is what was spoken of by the prophet Joel, for example, in his sermon on the day of Pentecost. Uh, so it denies the fact that Christ is reigning, which follows the fact that, that he was rejected by the Jews, so now there's a church in but denies the fact that Christ is now reigning on the throne. And that we're not in the last days. Uh, the book of Hebrews begins by what? The writer begins by saying, that in these last days, in these last days, God has spoken to us through His Son. So we're living in those last days. So, so here are some of the implications of the premillennial theory all right, that we see. Okay, our study uh, uh, Wednesday evening, take some time if you have time, uh, look at Revelation chapter 20 a little more closely. Uh, we want to spend a fair amount of our time in Revelation 20. Not totally. We're going to weave in some passages uh, from the book of Psalms because the proof text primarily resides in Psalms and in Revelation 20. Uh, then they will try to defend other passages like Isaiah 2. Uh, Isaiah 2 is a proof text, so we'll look at some of those next Sunday. So Wednesday evening is, is Revelation chapter 20, some Psalms. Next Sunday morning, we're going to look at a number of passages, as much time as we have, that really comes back and refutes the implications that we talked about this morning. My first of morning was introduce what the theory is, remind us that it's still alive, uh, that it can it does influence people in the Lord's church today. It's something we need to understand. It's something we need to be able to teach against. And if we're armed with the truth, you don't have to fear error, right? You never have to fear error if you're armed with the truth. All right, very good. Take a fair one's meeting.